Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 and to the passage that we are focusing on in the run-up to Christmas this year. We're looking forward very much to have Simon coming to open God's Word to us just in a few moments' time. We're going to read this passage. We're focusing particularly on the names given by prophecy to the Lord Jesus in verse 6, but we're going to read from verse 1, and the verses will appear on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But let's hear this portion of God's Word. We're going back 750 years before the events of Bethlehem that first Christmas. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they're glad when they divide the spoil, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. We thank him for it. Let's take a moment to pray together before we sing again. Father, we thank you for this zeal of the Lord of hosts that has accomplished so much in this world. Thank you this morning. We worship you as our creator, as our sustainer as the one who has come to us in the person of your son, as the one who has spoken to us in the pages of your word, as the one who has sent from heaven the Holy Spirit to live in our lives, as the one who has set before us the wonderful prospect of being with you forever. We come to bring you the worship and the praise of our hearts this Lord's Day. And thank you for everything that we've shared in already this morning. Thank you for the joy of being part of the family of your people, for being part of this company this morning in this building. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to open the word of God. And this morning, we do pray uh, that he will speak to us. So let us pray just as we begin. Our Father, we do thank you for uh, these wonderful truths that we have sung this morning. We thank you that these are not truths that we have made up or dreamt up, but these are truths that have been declared to us, uh, declared through the centuries in Scripture, declared to us by you. And so this morning we ask that once again you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would change us, and that we would see afresh something of the wonder, of the glory, of the majesty of our precious Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we do pray this, asking it for his glory. And in the name of our precious Saviour Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, on Friday afternoon, as a family, we decided to try something a little bit different this Christmas. Uh, when school was over, uh, we all got ready, we dressed up against the elements and we headed into Glasgow to George Square uh, to see the lights and to perhaps take part in some of the festive activities that were going on there. The Ferris wheel had been booked, the hot chocolate was sweet, and the rides looked very appealing. But the question was this, uh, after two hours had passed, would our expectations have been met? It all looked wonderful. But without experience match what was being sold to us. And I wonder uh, if, like many people, you have ever experienced uh, the disappointment of a season or of a time in life or of a particular event that you have been looking forward to. Not that we were disappointed then, but we know what it's like to have our expectations built and then for them to come crashing down. For instance, every TV advert on the television just now promises the perfect Christmas, doesn't it? With just the right atmosphere, with succulent food, with incredible decoration, and of course, with perfect company. We are sold that vision of what Christmas should be like. Tragically, this is what the world has reduced Christmas to. Something to be planned. Something to be invested in, just so that we can later say how much we enjoyed ourselves. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying Christmas, but we have to realize this morning that God's word tells us of something that's infinitely greater about Christmas. We're not held hostage to the hopelessness of basing our Christmases on food, parties, and decorations. But you know, it's also possible that our expectations of God are managed in precisely the same way. We're driven by an unholy, unholy agenda that the world has planted in us. We're led to have a low opinion of what God has done and even who God is. But these seven verses that Craig has read to us this morning are verses that encourage us to see the Lord in the most glorious fashion. And we're just going to focus in on two words. How on earth are you going to get a half-hour sermon out of two words, you're asking? Well, we're about to find out. But these two words are wonderful words. Because these two words speak of Jesus. These two words are simply mighty God. And so this morning we have to see that the might of God exceeds Christmas expectations in unexpected ways. Let's just put things into context. Already in this book of Isaiah, God is pointed to hope. He's warned of judgment. And just as we've read those seven verses together this morning, we see that there is darkness in the land. It's no doubt spiritual darkness. The king and the people alike have got no time for God. They've got no interest in the worship of God. But there's also a gloom of despondency in world events. Because Israel and Judah are under the cosh. Assyria is threatening them. Judah itself has no real hope. As Israel tries to stand up to Assyria, Judah just simply capitulates and says to Assyria, you can have what you want as long as you look after us. But what Isaiah says, and remember this is Isaiah speaking God's word, what Isaiah says in the gloom is that there will be a bright light that comes and shines God's salvation into the very hearts of the people. A new day is going to dawn where the hope of God's promise will be fully seen. 
A new age will arrive where there is nothing but perfection. Now the immediate verses around verse 6 tell us that God has promised this mercy, this redemption, this salvation. And he gives a very clear picture that a time is coming where everything is going to be put right. But the question is, how is this going to happen? How will God do it? Well, a child is going to come. That's stunning. It's perplexing. It's absurd even. But it is true. God is going to send a child to make things right. And as Craig taught us last week, this light, this salvation, this promise, this perfection is all centered on the coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to be no disappointment for his people. There will be no silly or ungodly expectations placed in him. He will be God incarnate. He alone will save from the deepest need in the human heart. And this is why we rightly and confidently call the Lord Jesus Christ mighty God. He's the keeper of God's promise. He is strong. He's outstanding. He is great. He is the champion who will win the victory. He is the visible proof of God's everlasting love. You know, the king of the day was Ahaz. He reigned in Judah. And Ahaz is quaking in his boots. The truth is, he's backed the wrong horse, to coin a phrase. He's turned down the chance to get support from his neighbor, Israel, as Assyria closes in. Instead, he signed this treaty with Assyria. And that meant that the people of Judah were now under the power of Assyria. They weren't free. They weren't able to do precisely what they wanted to do. And yet, the tragedy, in a sense, is that they are still being battered by the armies of the king of Israel and the king of Syria. Ahaz's mistake was not in rejecting an alliance with Israel. His grave error was not trusting God. And so Isaiah has come to Ahaz and he's telling the king, you have to trust God. And Ahaz asks, well, how do I know that I can trust God? And Eventually, Isaiah says, a sign is going to be sent to you. And here's the sign. A virgin is going to be with child and will give birth. And Ahaz rejects that sign. He doesn't know who this child is going to be. He doesn't believe this child will be the wonderful counselor that we heard of last week. He doesn't believe that this expected birth is going to bring into the world mighty God. This morning I do pray that we will see that we are to trust in the might of God to save us for eternity. And it's in our mighty God, Jesus Christ, that we see complete victory. And the first success that we see is in mighty God overcoming hopeless pessimism. This doubt and mistrust that Ahaz is showing is is actually foolish because Isaiah makes this stunning description of the coming child. It's absolutely wonderful just to read what this child is going to be like. And right uh, this morning, we are looking at that second little title. It might be little in terms of the space it takes up on the page, but it is massive in terms of what is being said. This is mighty God who is coming. And this promise, the Son of God coming to this world, blows away our pessimism, does it not? It takes away our emptiness. It ends our hopelessness. Now, of course, it's understandable to see why Ahaz feels so hopeless, so pessimistic. Compared to the powers around him, his army is puny. Uh, His military might is, is really nothing. The situation is overwhelming. But 
Ahaz makes really poor decisions, doesn't he? Because he doesn't trust in God and he's got no excuse. Because God doesn't just whisper for Ahaz to trust. God doesn't have Ahaz guessing that he is to trust. God commissions the foremost prophet of the day, the most faithful prophet of the day, Isaiah, to go and tell Ahaz what he must do. But Ahaz rejects the message. And so everything looked bleak. Everything was shrouded in darkness. Everything's hopeless. Where is this light going to come from? And you know, it was much the same for the people of Judea at the time that Jesus was born. Uh, Their land was occupied by a foreign power. The Romans were there. Uh, The Romans were strong. They were really good on the battlefield. They were cruel. They were barbaric. But worse than that, there was a darkness that had overtaken the holy land in those days because the people had no trust in God. They were engaged in a corrupt form of worship that was controlled by the religious leaders of the day. Uh, Corruption that centered worship really in making sure that those leaders were the ones that were exalted and, and not God. And if the people had any hope at all, it was certainly misplaced as the darkness reigned. And yet it's into that darkness, it's into 400 years of silence that God sends Gabriel to Mary and declares that there is going to be might in this coming child. Now, of course, the Jews, they struggled to accept that this child was from God. How could this be the Messiah where the mother was of such dubious morality How could he be politically astute or militarily savvy being the son of a mere carpenter? How could he arrest the global stage when the place that he was from was Nazareth? And of course, you remember in in John chapter 1 verse 46, the question is asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from Galilee? And so the doubts are there. But you know, as Jesus is born, prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled. That virgin birth prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, that takes place. The promise that Bethlehem Ephrathah would be the location of this birth. Lo and behold, what happens? But Mary and Joseph find themselves in Bethlehem, and who's born there but Jesus? This is stunning. God is finally telling his people just how he is going to deliver them. His message is is to declare that the long-awaited Messiah is here. This is the Savior that's heralded, as we were speaking to the children, as Stephen was telling us that story earlier. And this is the Savior that's heralded by the angel to the shepherds. And so pessimism can turn to optimism. Doubt can be replaced by the certain hope that God saves. And you know, it might be that you're feeling pessimistic today. You might be feeling hopeless today as you look at the state of the world around you. And when we do that, when we allow ourselves to see the world around us, what do we see but conflict? What do we experience but the difficulty of balancing the books? Not just on a corporate level, but on a personal level. 
As we look around, we see that there's a terminal decline in morality. And the outlook is utterly bleak. And, you know, we might ask ourselves, how is it that God can do anything about this? Well, incredibly, all these global-scale problems are nothing before God. What does Psalm 2 tell us? Tell us. Psalm 2 says that God scoffs at them. These problems that are insurmountable to us, well, to like God, they are like that child that comes down on Christmas morning and sees the presents, but doesn't know what they've received. And so what do they do to that wrapping paper? But they tear it apart, they shred it, they disperse it, they get beyond it with ease. And this is how God deals with problems. He tears them, he shreds them, he gets past them with an ease that only God can do. And God's word gives us every reason to be hopeful, not hopeless. The Bible says that mighty God has come. This child who was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, brought up as a carpenter, is all-powerful. He is mighty. His power is unlimited. It's unchallengeable. It is might that sweeps away all opposition. And who is this mighty God? where we have that lovely carol by Philip Bliss. And we'll put up the quote on the screen. And a little town of Bethlehem is that wonderful line that says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. We bring these hopes. We bring our fears. And we vest them in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Christ alone. Amen. Only divine might can set aside the disillusionment and despondency of the world. But there is further victory. And it's seen, uh, just in this next point, it's seen in the defeat of mindless expectation. It's true to say that since the Garden of Eden, humankind has had the wrong understanding of what to expect from God. The Old Testament time and time again promises a saving Messiah. But these promises are misunderstood because the Messiah is expected to be a political leader, a, a military general, somebody who's just simply going to set the people free from the oppression that they're experiencing in the here and now. Now, mindless expectation is not the same as unrealistic optimism. Mindless expectation is having the wrong idea of what reality is. And Ahaz is very much caught up in that because Ahaz is facing the crisis of a generation. And it's all self-inflicted because Ahaz has just simply taken the people away from God. And as Israel, that northern kingdom, invaded Judah, an unthinkable catastrophe overcomes Judah. We read in 2 Chronicles 28 of the details. But listen to them because they are staggering. In one day, in one day, 120,000 Judean men were killed. 200,000 women and children are taken captive. The scale of this divine judgment is terrifying. And this monarchy that has been established and promised through David, that's under threat. And the future, of course, is looking dismal indeed. And Ahaz is the man at the top. He's the man who's faced with finding the answers to these questions. And the question that's on everybody's lips is, how can our future be secure? Ahaz, understandably, wants the invaders gone. He wants peace restored. He wants safety. But he's in political survival 
mode. He's finally tuned into military solutions. He's got no inclination that God is the one that he should be turning to. And of course, as we fast forward the 750 years from the time that Isaiah brings this prophecy, we see that there was a, a similar mindless expectation of the coming Messiah as Jesus is born there in Bethlehem. The expectation is that the coming Messiah would at least be of some kind of princely stock. He would be of royal blood. And of course, Jesus Christ is of royal blood. But where did the Magi go when they arrived in the area? They, they didn't head for Bethlehem straight away. Uh, they, they went straight to the palace. They went straight to the king. And then as that child Jesus grows, the religious leaders despise him because he's got authority in his teaching. They're not looking for might in the pulpit. They're looking for somebody who can wield a sword. And so there's no way that this baby in the manger of Bethlehem could be mighty God, could he? It was unthinkable that Galilean would be the deliverer on a par with Moses. And so as the eyes are trained on that part of the world, as people are thinking through, is this boy Jesus the Messiah? They've got no idea that mighty God is at work. And I just wonder what our expectations are of a mighty God. It might be that you hope that he will banish conflict, that he'll end suffering, that he'll take away inequality, and that he will bring an end to injustice in this world. Or perhaps it's slightly more personal for you this morning. It may be that you want him to work in your life to give you peace, health, wealth, status, or some form of help and difficulties that you've got to face. But you know, Christmas is not the promise of making the world better. Christmas is not an assurance of, of making your life better. Christmas is the promise of a mighty God working in a way that's wholly greater than anything that we could ever Imagine, mighty God is accomplishing, has accomplished something most wonderful because he has defeated sin. He's not put some temporary fix in place. He's not taking a sticking plaster and putting it over the great problem. This is God eternally meeting the deepest need of humankind. And we can have that realistic expectation. As we come to Christ this morning, he will meet our need. Christmas is not about making things better. It is about mighty God making our eternities secure. You know, only divine might can raise our expectations from the temporary transient things of this world and then set our hearts upon our next point, which is divine salvation. Now, the overarching theme of Isaiah and if you want to read the six to six chapters, it's certainly worthwhile. It will feed your soul, but it will take you a little, bit, a little bit of time. But you will find that that theme that runs from start to finish in Isaiah is that of coming judgment, but ultimate salvation in those who trust in God. And here things are looking bleak for Judah, but there is salvation at hand. Ahaz is only after military deliverance. He wants that safety. He wants rid of the invaders. In this national crisis, you would think that at very least he would be forced to look to God. 
You would think as he cannot control the circumstances around him, as he cannot fight off the invaders, that surely he would come to his senses. But no, he responds in a pagan way. What does Ahaz do? Uh, well, we read in Second Chronicles that he closes the doors of the temple porch. He shuts up the temple. He stops lighting the golden candlestick. No incense is offered to God. In fact, what Ahaz does is he banishes all form of true worship. He would not have got on well here this morning with the worship that we have been led in. And you know, on top of that, he then commissions and builds these statues of horses. And these horses are directed there so that people will worship the sun. You know, in short, Ahaz wants nothing from God. He expects nothing from God. And he's certainly going to give nothing to God. He's got no faith, no trust that God is the answer that he needs, that the people needs, or that the world needs. And you know, in the light of all this, it's utterly incredible to see that Ahaz has his name listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1 verse 9. This is the king who, when he did die, got no state funeral. He wasn't buried with the rest of the kings because he was so ridiculously incompetent. But you know, this godless, faithless king isn't put there in Matthew 1 to indicate that his disobedience was of no consequence. His name is in that line from Abraham to Jesus so that we would know that Jesus Christ saves from the most powerful enemy in existence. That Jesus Christ is the victor over sin. And we are assured this morning that no amount of faithlessness can halt the Lord's salvation. No amount of antagonism can stop the work of God. No amount of legislation or public opinion will come and put a stumbling block in the way of what God is going to achieve. Why? Because he's mighty God. It's mighty God who redeems. It's mighty God who delivers from sin. And you know, we can be prone to forget the purpose of Christmas. And we need to stop and ask, why did this child come? What is Isaiah telling us here in chapter 9? Well, Isaiah was telling Ahaz, he was telling the people of the day in Judah, just as he's telling us right now, that God was sending his son to come to this world in order to save. And you know, while there might be darkness, Christ offers light. You know, I think Stephen had seen my notes this morning because he took these two verses that I wanted to quote and how wonderful God works. Christ isn't just offering a light, but he is the light of the world, isn't he? Where there is doubt, Christ offers certainty. Where there is judgment, Christ offers salvation. This child, in all his wonder, in all his might, came to grow up, to die on the cross. Got a little quote here from George Campbell Morgan. He was the predecessor of Martin Lloyd Jones at Westminster Chapel. And Campbell Morgan said, Christ is the final word about salvation. Here he's not only without peer, he is without a competitor. And so we are called to trust the Christ who came at Christmas. We are to trust his birth. We are to trust his life. We are to trust his death. We are to trust his resurrection. And we are to trust that he is going to return to take his people 
into eternity where he will reign not just in peace, not just with wonderful counsel, not just as eternal father, but he will reign in all power. And so you can know the certainty that Isaiah spoke of in your life this Christmas. You can know the truth that this child who promised salvation did come to redeem his people. But you might be asking this morning, where is the might of God today? Why is mighty God so important a title? As we look at this particular verse over these four Sunday mornings and evenings in December. Well, Christmas, of course, does speak about humility. It speaks about an apparent lack of power, doesn't it? There's not a palace but a manger. There's no power couple influencer like we have today, but just a humble carpenter and his wife. We don't have a metropolis but Nazareth. We don't have a fanfare by human rulers. There's no mention in dispatches, just the words of an angel to some shepherds on a hillside outside of Bethlehem. And how did the powers of the day respond as Jesus came into this world? Well, what did Herod do but send a detachment of soldiers off to Bethlehem to kill every boy two years and under? And you know, as the world looks for glory, strength, power, and ability, it doesn't necessarily see them in Christmas. This coming child seemed to have none of this. So how is God mighty? How do we respond today? How does God work today? Well, he does it. Because this child grew up. And as he grew up, he lived a life that was utterly without sin. Perfect in every moment. Something that no human being could do. This child grew up and he was taken and he was rejected by people and leaders alike and... He was put on a cross. Now that looks like defeat, doesn't it? That looks like a lack of might. In the cross we see dishonor, we see death. In those days the cross was not a symbol of victory, but it was on that cross that the great victory of God was won. And it was won over sin, it was won over death. And so mighty God is the one who saves. Mighty God is the one who delivers. And let me get to the crux of the matter this morning and ask you this question. Have you trusted in Christ? Is your faith in mighty God? Trust in the might of God. To save for eternity. You know I'm very happy to report that our afternoon on Friday in George Square was a a resounding success. I didn't go in the Ferris wheel. Someday to hold the coats. (laughs) But you know we had fun. It was vibrant. We had a super time as a family. It did everything that we expected of it. But you know, whatever my expectations of that were, whatever your expectations for this life might be, we need to realize that they don't matter. Because we need to trust that our mighty God goes further and does more than we could ever imagine. He shatters pessimism. 
He outstrips our expectation. He divinely saves. And we know that the might of God exceeds Christmas expectations in unexpected ways. You know, I really hope that your Christmas will not be disappointing. I'm sure it's not going to be. But the vital thing is this. Are you or are you not trusting in mighty God? Trust in the might of God to save you for eternity. Before we sing our our next song, Silent Night, let's pray and leave these things before our God this morning. Father, how we thank you. We thank you that you gave these words to Isaiah to say and to record. We thank you that we can read them now. But Father, it's our prayer this morning that we do not just read them and let them pass over us, but we would read them and they would find a foothold in our hearts. We pray that you would teach us that you're mighty God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty God. That you would let us see the great victory, not just of God incarnate, not just of the virgin birth, but the great truth that Christ died and rose again and that he is our saviour. May he receive all the glory that he is due for all eternity. As we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.